interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Chris Ayala, Managing Director at Drum Capital, a lower to middle market private equity firm based out of Connecticut. Welcome, and thank you very much for sharing your insights. I appreciate it, Alex. Thank you so much. First, if you could kick off as his customer and give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Managing Director at Drum Capital Management, lower middle market private equity firm based in Stamford, Connecticut. We execute three strategies. We're a fund-to-fund primary investor, usually alongside special situation or distressed funds, equity funds, predominantly in the United States, mostly in the middle market. Think about fund managers who are raising their second, third, or fourth fund and aren't quite Main Street yet. And that's the value that we bring for our limited partners. We also participate in minority equity co-investments, typically in a non-controlled position. And oftentimes they're alongside those fund managers that we've already invested in. But occasionally we'll look at unique opportunities presented to us by sponsor groups or management teams. And then finally, we also have a direct buyout strategy where we are the lead sponsor looking more at lower middle market businesses. And we define that as EBITDA performance between five and $25 million. Oftentimes we're focused more on businesses that are owned by families and founders because we believe there's a great deal of inefficiency still in those businesses rather than a business that's owned by a more traditional sponsor group. We're generalists, and so we like to really look at mostly businesses in manufacturing, industrials, and then generally related business-to-business services. Being generalists allow us to basically understand and develop a thesis around a business during our diligence process with really only understanding maybe 80 to 85% of the entire business. Obviously, management knows that day-to-day insight and expertise. So we look for good management teams, although sometimes we'll go into an investment with an opportunity to replace management, but much more on a growth-oriented scale. We're not looking to cut out G&A, drop a great deal to the bottom. We think that there's an opportunity to get into other markets, whether geographic, whether tangential business, and really amplify the business during our investment period. Before this, I've served in a number of roles, probably one of the more non-linear background private equity investors you'll come across. I've served as the chief executive officer for a hardware and software business. I've served as the head of operations for a family-owned software business in the transportation logistics industry. I was also at one point general counsel for a private equity firm doing oil and gas investing in Western Canada and the Western United States. And I started my career as an M&A attorney in New York City, working predominantly on sponsor transactions for firms like Cerberus or Blackstone really sort of middle to upper middle market transactions, front page of the Wall Street Journal type transactions, but made the move almost two decades now from the legal side to the business side, and then obviously to the investment side. That's it. So interesting to get into that, Chris, because from lawyer to business operator to private equity investor, that's three careers in one there. What made you make the transition from operator to obviously investor? Yeah, absolutely. So Going through all those different steps, I'd like to think that I put a lot of arrows in my quiver, a lot of different skill sets having sat effectively in every seat involved in a LBO transaction. 
the executive management side, the legal side, the debt side, the equity side. And so taking those skill sets, I put myself in a really strong position to be able to execute deals really from the start when we're first introduced to an opportunity or going out and mining for opportunities using some business development skills all the way through the nuts and bolts of the transaction, the legal documents, the closing, and then obviously the portfolio management. The driver there is I enjoy being a generalist and I enjoy being involved with a lot of different industries or a lot of different businesses. As an investor in private equity, I have the opportunity to sit at a board level or a chair board in a lot of different businesses at the same time, relying and working on with the management team. Having that experience of being an executive leader, I understand how to report to a board and really understand from that seat where a board can add a lot of value. But I've sort of stepped away from the day-to-day operations of my businesses. However, in this lower middle market with these size businesses, sometimes you do need to parachute in and help a business during a rough period. And so there's been instances where I've actually had to go perform as an interim CEO for a couple portfolio companies, actually serving day-to-day in the plant location or the business location during a time of change of executive leadership. And having that experience there allows me to get closer to the portfolio company. It allows us not to rely on third-party consultants who can be expensive and also have a bit of a learning curve. And it'll add a lot of value to our LPs because during a rough time or a time of transition, the person who's closest to the deal from the private equity sponsor, me in these cases, is actually on-site working with the company and helping it focus on what's most important to the equity holders. Interesting. And and how have you found that experience prior? Because it surprises me actually how many people have interviewed, certainly for the podcast, and you know we work with through our executive search firm, have actually made that move from operator to investor. But you know the typical route of investment banking, maybe consulting, seems to be typical. The older route would have been lawyer through to uh, private equity investor, which is kind of like the Rubenstein type model when he made that transition. How do you feel that's helped you certainly as a become a better investor and engage better with those portfolio companies and portfolio executives? I think in all the different aspects, right? Whether it's early in a deal opportunity with a diligence perspective, being able to red flag significant issues, both on the financial side, as well as in the day-to-day operations, sometimes that involves legal, but really looking at the contracts and, and identifying what are those higher risk elements that make a deal interesting, make it a deal opportunistic, or make a deal a strong pass. From a board level perspective, able to really sort of cut through major issues and get to the heart of the problem. One of our attorneys that we work with made a very nice comment a couple of weeks ago where he said, it's great working with me and Drum because when we're doing the deal docs, you can sort of synthesize what the problem is and get to an answer rather than having to go through the whole process. And that's efficiency. When we're doing these deals, we don't use a large team. We do have sellers that have a certain period of time to get a deal done, 30, 60, 90 days at the outset. And so it's really important to be able to sort of synthesize a lot of information, make decisions quickly, and sort of get to the point where we say, yeah, this is good, no, this is bad, or hey, we've got an opportunity here. So I think that skill set, the experiences, both with the legal as well as the operational, really assists me a great deal during that diligence and acquisition period. And the same can be said during the investment period. We can look at whether it's the monthly financials, whether it's any reports that were being delivered, just analyzing KPIs even, and really understanding what's behind those numbers from a true operational experience. 
that allows us to sort of get to that second, third level of the onion to understand what's really the problem here, not what's wrong with the numbers. And so I think it adds a great deal of skills and allows me to perform my job better. The other piece of it is working with my junior team. A lot of these folks do have more traditional backgrounds where they've come out of a, an undergrad program. Maybe they went to an iBanking analyst role. And so they're very, very strong analytically. They're very, very strong with financials. But the practical experience of actually being in the four walls of the business, understanding managing people and managing problems is a skill set that they haven't really had a great deal of experience with. And so I'm very fortunate to be able to take some of my experience and train other folks. Excellent. And is there an element of the operator side that you'd miss, Chris, or have you, did you kind of scratch that edge enough when you were there? I know I've spoken to quite a few people and they're kind of like, you know, depending where they've kind of transitioned in their career, some of them trying to feel like, oh, I wish part of me could just go back and shake these guys and get them kind of get it going with regards to the executive team at times. Do you miss the operator role or did you scratch enough of that edge and have enough of it? There are certain aspects of it that I do miss. One is the feeling of team camaraderie, particularly when momentum is being built in a business, securing a big win, improving something operationally, and being able to walk around the office and whether it's the senior vice president or whether it's the janitor, whoever it is, and sort of saying, hey, we did a really good job here. That was excellent. You know, we should all enjoy these wins. Sitting in my office here, I don't get to participate in that. At the same time, you also sometimes miss the late nights scribbling away at a pad in an office somewhere on site when you're trying to figure out how do we turn X, Y, and Z around. And just the personal appreciation of maybe working with the folks and getting a solution to a major problem and working through it on whiteboards, you sort of miss some of that too. We are one step removed and not being able to sort of navigate the good and the bad from afar. So I do miss that aspect of it. But again, I sort of get an opportunity to do that because I'm pretty much speaking with senior leadership at least weekly and obviously reviewing our reports every month and and having board calls. And I enjoy that too, because it allows me to sort of manage how much I get engaged. My thesis is around hiring really strong managers. Sometimes they cost a little bit more, both in cash as well as equity. But if you have a really strong team that's operating the business, the growth and the ability to navigate large problems is simplified. It's reduced. And that allows me to then work at that level across multiple platforms rather than just singularly focused on one. Sounds like the best of both worlds. And you've still, as you mentioned earlier, got that exposure as well from an interim basis and been able to jump on board when needs be. So just to flip that question, actually, for anybody who's a C-suite executive, portfolio executive listening, what advice did you give for them to be able to improve communication, improve, improve relationship, and work better with the private equity firms based on your previous track record? Of, I know you've worked with venture and private equity-backed businesses, but also obviously your current role as a natural investor. Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grata. The private equity market is rapidly shifting to a data-driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grutter provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grutter so you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.grutter.com. Now back to the podcast. Well, I think it's like starting any professional seat. It's over-communicate day one and really understand that everybody around you, whether it's the folks reporting to you or it's the folks that you're reporting to, just want to know what's going on. 
and they want that open line of communication. They don't want oversharing, but they do need enough information so that it's more of a dialogue and a conversation than it is just a feedback of information. So if I were an executive and a new private equity firm came in and I had a new board of directors, I'd sort of like to say, hey, you know, I'm going to share a lot with you. You tell me when to stop sharing or you tell me how to drop that down so that I get an understanding of what they're looking for. I think number two is actively understand what's most important for that private equity owner from an outcome perspective in the short term and the long term. Obviously, I think we're all driven by growth and EBITDA expansion, but there might be other drivers that the private equity investor internally on their investment committee identified as an opportunity and they want to see that executed. Or there are communications from a private equity owner up to their limited partners. Maybe there are certain aspects of a business where they'd like to see something happen. And if that's not being shared or it's not being communicated by the private equity owner, maybe the executive wants to raise his hand or her hand and say, hey, what makes you excited about this investment so that I can make sure, again, whether it's we want to get into the sales in the state of Texas, and that's a near-term goal, or we'd like to see us do three more acquisitions over a six-year or five-year time period in these geographies, or there's a great tangential opportunity from a sales perspective of ancillary service that we do 5% of, but the investment thesis really relies on growing that from 5% to 40%. And I should sort of start thinking about how to build up a team and how to execute on that strategy over the next 6, 12, 18 months. I think the third thing that's really important from private equity perspective that's different than a family or founder-owned business is the time frame. You know, you're coming from a family or founder-owned business, success is great. Success can take place in the short term, or sometimes it doesn't need to. It can take place five, six, seven, eight, nine years. As private equity investors, we've got a really limited hold period. And so the value of every day, of every hour of executing and moving that ball a little bit further down the field is paramount. And so being able to understand that speed and that urgency that comes with that new ownership group is really important. And to have that open dialogue with the private equity owner, what are these expectations? What are the timelines around it? I think will allow the executive to sit down and say, okay, now I can start thinking about my execution plan and how I can sort of tie in these different demands and requirements being brought in by new ownership. Very detailed, Chris, and certainly appreciate that. Look at your portfolio companies. You've got three that you sit as a board member of, of which are all in you know, the building product sector. What is your take on that market and the attraction that's brought you to invest in that space with multiple companies? Our company has a portfolio company in building products that actually dates way back to my joining. And we use that as a bit of a driver. It's a, it's a commercial sawmill. And it was a relatively good indicator of, as volumes went up, an understanding of who's buying and where are these products going to. And using some of that internal data, we looked at the building products market you know, back in 2019. And we found a wonderful window business. And at the time, the vinyl window business market was relatively fragmented. We were able to develop a really keen thesis on a very strong, positive cash flowing business that had been owned by an excellent owner for about 40 years. And we thought we could step in, take over that business, and then do really you know, sort of an M&A roll-up strategy where we could find different locations in each of the four regions of the United States, Midwest, Southeast, West, and then Northeast, 
and build businesses that are from the plant location hyper regionalized, but selling comparable high quality products in each of the different territories and sort of building up a mass there. And, you know, I think we did a great deal. It was very fairly valued. The business had a good management team. It needed some executive leadership. But the end market is what sort of really drove us. We saw a great deal of steady growth in building products, particularly solid growth in the Midwest, but really exciting growth down in the South and the Southeast. And we thought we could capture that, which led us to our second acquisition, which is a business down in Houston, Texas. During that time period, there's been some more consolidation. And I think by the time that we really got a good, firm understanding of the business's day-to-day, there was a lot of deals that were getting traded to some much larger strategics that sort of bled away some of that hyper-fragmentation. However, the market was still pretty strong. And then obviously, with the occurrence of COVID in 2020 and then 2021, bleeding into 2022, we saw rapid growth. It was outsized and the demand was unbelievable. This was a good thing for the business. Ultimately, from a top line perspective, sometimes it hurt our margins significantly. But we really spent the second half of last year and the beginning part of this year rebalancing our P&L for each of these businesses, trying to make sure our pricing was right, trying to work with our vendors to make sure their pricing was right. I'd say that the market in general, I'm still relatively bullish on it. We're seeing some softness in the space but we're still seeing demand. And and I think if you look at the company's performance in 19 and 20 and looking at how the company will perform in 23, I think the growth between those years is probably a better indicator of health than it is how things performed in 21 and 22, simply because there was such demand that uh, it's just not there anymore, but it's still a healthy industry. Appreciate the insight. What do you love about private equity, Chris, and equally, what do you dislike about it? I like the ability to work with or identify both industries and operating companies with a great deal of breadth of practice. So whether it's a company that does B2B services of installing smart systems into government buildings, whether it's a door manufacturer, whether it's an OEM parts manufacturer, intellectually, I get to look at these businesses find trends in their financial performance, find trends in their organizational structure, and identify businesses that I personally think are really interesting and that I can convince the rest of my investment committee is also really interesting. At the same time, it's not purely a financial game. It's not like, you know, I'm buying short and long equity positions. I do get the opportunity to interact with people at, at the business level, and that's important to me. I like working with folks. I like learning from other people. Um, I like participating in the successes and wins. I'm a private equity investor that gets out of the office. I like going once a quarter at a minimum to each of my companies, walking the halls, spending time there, spending a few days just in the office, getting a vibe for how people are interacting. That gives me energy. Sometimes they like to see me too. And that makes me feel good as well. We're a small team here and it's nice to get the exposure and, and really work with the team and making sure that culture is there. These businesses, yes, they, they are financial mechanisms, but at the same time, they're also places that people go every day, making sure that the company has a great culture, that folks are proud of what they do, that folks are proud of who they work with, pretty much just as important to me as just the financial outcomes as well. Ben, interested to hear, you've seen three different elements of private equity. You've worked at it from a lawyer perspective, you've worked at it as an operator, and you've worked as, a, as an investor. What do you dislike about private equity because of that? 
The only thing I wouldn't like about private equity, if I was to say one item, for some of our businesses, we do have that point in time where we have to exit the business. Over a period of time of when you're getting to learn the business, learn the people, build relationships, and at some point you sort of know, hey, we're going to have to sell this and exit it. And that, at times, can be challenging. There's a great deal of goodwill that you've built up with people. Text conversations I have with our head of sales at certain businesses or even the guy working the plant floor that texts me every now and then just checking in because I haven't been there in a couple of weeks. And those relationships that you don't want to lose personally, part of the business is to lose. And I think that's sort of the one downside to this. It makes sense. I don't hear many private equity investors putting it down on the exit, but I do completely get the perspective. And obviously you build very strong relationships with your portfolio companies and uh, maybe that operator experience comes into significant play there. So what do you take as your kind of influences, Chris? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen if you do so? And what would you recommend maybe that others check out? Maybe a unique answer, but my wife's work. My wife is a professional executive. And what I really enjoy doing is literally when we come home together after her busy day and my busy day, and, and we sort of talk shop to the extent that she's in a totally different business than I am. But we have a lot of shared conversations about day-to-day and what's going on in strategy and, and working through problems, working through difficult people, thinking about how to scale. And so that's really my inspiration. I've got two 10-year-old kids who are very athletic and run around the weekend. I don't get a lot of time to sit down and read a book. I also have an endless list of things to do around the house cleaning outdoors or, you know, getting rid of some old wood or doing something to clean the garage. Those activities obviously take a lot of my time, but it's really those conversations where I get to share and learn more about what my wife does. And she learns about what I do. And then we, you know, whether it's over a glass of wine or dinner or watching TV, we have these conversations and that really inspires me because it keeps my head working and maybe there's an investment opportunity that comes out of it too. Sounds like quite the, I don't like the term, but I'll use it. The kind of power couple there, Chris, of both leading is you're investing in businesses and she's keeping that operator spark for you, for you both uh, still strongly alive. So sounds like a, uh, a perfect match. So Chris, if there's anyone listening who wants to reach out to you post this podcast, how best do they uh, get in touch with you, please? My email address obviously is A-Y-A-L-A at drumcapital.com, D-R-U-M. T-A-P-I-T-A-L dot com. You call or text 917-656-2963. I'm always available, usually around unless I'm traveling to a portfolio company. In deep discussion on strategy with your wife, of course, Chris. Well, Chris, thank you very much for your insight. Really appreciate it. With previous lawyer, moved into operator, moved into private equity investor, and you know, obviously very heavy involved in your portfolio companies and lots for everyone to take from this discussion. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing your insights. Well, I appreciate it, Alex. Thank you. And congratulations again on the new baby. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate that. And as always, thank you very much for those listening. Of course, if you should ever need private equity executives for your portfolio companies or private equity professionals into your private equity firms themselves, then please do reach out to us at Rural Selection. We operate across Europe and of course, North America. And if you've not already done so, please do subscribe and you'll be notified of the next podcast, which comes out every two weeks. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. 
Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.